Well, good morning. Let's just pause and uh, have another word of prayer. Ask God to guide us uh, as we study his word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for what you want to teach us and for how you want to challenge us and how you want to encourage us today. And we, as we open up your word now, we ask that through your spirit you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you want to say to us. We ask it all for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I, I was wondering one day, and I don't know if you ever thought of this, but have you ever wondered what kind of games does God like to play? You think, well, Brad, I've wondered a lot of things about God, but I've never really wondered what kind of games God likes to play, right? But I was thinking about this. What kind of board games, what kind of games does God like to play? I thought, uh, you know, does he like to play Sorry? Is that his favorite game? Or maybe Scrabble, you know, Risk? Is he into Settlers of Catan? Jenga? Yahtzee? What kind of games do you think God likes to play? Now, Albert Einstein said, God does not play dice. So maybe that kind of limits some of the uh, games that God would play. Although in fairness, what Einstein said was God does not play dice with the universe. And so maybe God does like some uh, dice games. But I think, I think God might like chess. I think God might like chess. I mean, God is this master strategist. Right? He's this, 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 this God that excels at moving various pieces around in complex moves and counter moves to accomplish his goals. He is this master strategist. And he can see millions of moves ahead. I'm told that world chess champion uh, Magnus Larsen says he can see about 15 to 20 moves ahead in a chess match. Well, God can see thousands, millions of moves ahead. And he's the kind of player who could beat you not only with the power pieces, like the queen and the rook and the, you know, the knights and the bishops. He could beat you not only with those pieces, but God could beat you just using pawns. I think God would enjoy playing chess. Now, in the book of Acts that we've been working through as a church over the last number of months, we have kind of a play-by-play description of God's advance of his kingdom in that early century. We might call it God's cosmic chess match as he advances his kingdom piece by piece, little by little. And most of the action in the book of Acts centers around what you might call some of the power pieces, guys like Peter, right? And later on, Paul, like these very famous Christian leaders. But there are other times when God seems to accomplish his feats through surprisingly minor pieces. And the account that we're going to read today is one of those times. Uh, I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 11. But before I do that, I just want to back up a little bit and just kind of set the stage for where we have been so far in the book of Acts as a church over the last couple of months. If we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Remember that Jesus kind of gives his, his plan for what is going to happen. He says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you are going to be my witnesses. He says, in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, 
and then in Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth. This is what is going to unfold. And the book of Acts is really describing the chess match where God starts to move his pieces out and out and out towards the ends of the, the earth. And so the, to this point, the, the gospel trajectory, what's happened at this point in Acts is that this movement of Christ followers began in Jerusalem with people who were exclusively Jewish. Uh, it, originally, to follow Christ was just a, really a form of Judaism. They were simply Jews who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah to the Jews. And so in Jerusalem, that movement was exclusively Jewish. But then as we start to read through the book of Acts, things start to happen. We get, for example, to chapter 8, and we encounter the conversion of a Samaritan. Samaritans were people of kind of mixed heritage, some Jew, some Gentile heritage. And, and, and so we see the encounter of a Samaritan uh, becoming to Christ, and Samaritans starting to follow Jesus. We also read the account of the Ethiopian eunuch coming to Jesus. Now, I think the Ethiopian eunuch was probably what was called a proselyte Jew. So these were people who were not Jewish by, by heritage or by birth, but they had converted to Judaism. They had fully converted to the Jewish religion, and they were now following the Jewish faith, and this Ethiopian eunuch had come to Jerusalem, the Bible says, to worship. And so I think probably this Ethiopian eunuch, even though uh, they weren't born Jewish, they had adopted the Jewish religion, and we see this person, this proselyte Jew, come to Christ. And then we go on a little farther into chapters 10, and we encounter Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is not Jewish. Cornelius is a Gentile, right? He's not Jewish. Uh, we are told that Cornelius fears God, and that may mean that Cornelius was a group of what was sometimes called the God-fearers. And God-fearers were Gentile people who had not converted to Judaism, but at the same time, they believed in the God of the Jews, and they followed many of the traditions and teachings of the Jews. But they hadn't fully converted to Judaism. So they were still Gentiles, but they were very sympathetic towards uh, Jewish beliefs. And Cornelius may have been kind of one of these on-the-border uh, types of Gentiles, what we sometimes call God-fears. And so in chapter 10 and 11, we read of this encounter with Cornelius. And so what's happening is the church is moving very slowly. God is moving his pieces outward and outward and outward through these chapters. And then we get to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, which is where we're going to go today. So uh, if you have a Bible, or you can turn to that. I'm going to walk you through this story. We're just going to kind of talk through it, and then I'm going to raise a couple of things from this account as God continues to advance His church. So Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19, we read this. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So this story actually begins with the, the death of Stephen, which was recorded back in Acts chapter 7. So what's actually happening here is there's kind of some simultaneous tracks in which God is working. Over here, God's working through the conversion of Saul, who will become Paul. He's working through Peter and Peter's encounter with Cornelius. And over here, there seems to be this separate track. There's people who were fleeing from Jerusalem because they were being persecuted after the death of Stephen. And so these two things are kind of happening at the same time. 
And so these people who are fleeing Jerusalem because they are being persecuted for following Christ as their Messiah or proclaiming Christ as their Messiah, we read that they travel as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Antioch is where we're going to focus today. Antioch was the capital city of the province of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Only Rome and Alexandria were larger. It was a culturally and ethnically and religiously very diverse city, very cosmopolitan city which included a, a large number of Jews, but also uh, a lot of Gentiles and a lot of different uh, ethnicities, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different religions. But it was kind of a logical place. If you were a Jewish Christ follower who had to leave Jerusalem and go live somewhere else, it was kind of a logical place to go. It was outside of Israel, but there was still a Jewish population there. And so these, these people traveled as far as Antioch, it says. And it goes on to say they spread the word only among the Jews, which makes sense because, as I said, at this point, uh, to, to the followers of Christ, Jesus was simply just the fulfillment of the messianic promise to the Jews. And so this was really a Jewish movement. And so when they showed up in Antioch, they connected with the Jews in Antioch, and they talked about Jesus with uh, the Jews that they connected with. But verse 20 says, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is an island just in the Mediterranean, very close to Antioch, actually. Cyrene is a city in North Africa. Some men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. Now, it's possible that these were uh, proselyte Jews, Gentiles that had converted to Judaism, but I think probably these men were what we sometimes call diaspora Jews, which means they were Jews who were not living in Israel. And Jews were actually living all over the Mediterranean region at this particular time. They weren't necessarily just in Israel. They were all over the Mediterranean. So these were probably Jews living outside of Israel. They lived in Cyprus. They lived in Cyrene. Uh, so these men, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, it says, they went to Antioch and they began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, this is very unexpected. And I'll comment on this a little bit more a little later. It says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, Barnabas was a Levite, a Jewish man who, lived in, who was from Cyprus. Uh, he had earned considerable credibility in the church. We meet him a couple of times in the book of Acts. We know he was a generous giver from Acts chapter 4. We know he was a great encourager because actually Barnabas was his nickname and it meant son of encouragement. We know he was a very encouraging guy to be around. He was one of the few people who was willing to take a risk on Saul when Saul converted from persecutor of the Christ followers to a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and none of the Christians wanted to hang out with him. Barnabas was one of the guys that said, hey, we got to give this guy a chance. So this was kind of the guy Barnabas was. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, the Bible says, he saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad. And he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And I'll comment on that a little later. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul. Because what had happened is Saul, after he converted from persecutor to preacher, he caused so much trouble in Jerusalem because of his bold preaching, and he would, he would refuse to stop talking about Jesus, that the church put him in a timeout. 
They sent him home to Tarsus. They said, Saul, you can't stay here. You're causing too much trouble. You need to go somewhere else. Go home. So they sent him to Tarsus, and he had been in Tarsus for probably about eight or nine years by now since his conversion. So basically, he was warming the bench, doing what he could, but kind of sidelined from doing anything of, of sort of grand significance. But Barnabas in Antioch sees an opportunity for Saul. He goes, I'm going to go get Saul, and Saul's going to come here and help me. So he goes to Cyprus, and he gets Saul, and when he found him, the scripture says, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So this is actually the place where the term Christian is coined. It was probably originally meant as an insult, these people that followed this Christ, these crazy people, but it became the label of a movement which would begin now to separate from Judaism and take on its own kind of independent identity. The identity that we now know as Christianity and Christians. And this label, this identity marker, first shows up in this church in Antioch. We read then, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread through the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, that is the Christians in Antioch, as each one was able, decided to provide help for their brothers and sisters living in Judea. So they did this, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. All right, so that's the story. Now I want to ask two questions about the story this morning. First question, what happened? And second question, how did this happen? Right, so those two questions are simply what I want to focus on. So the first question, what just happened? You may not recognize this from just reading it because it's really a very short passage in the entirety of the book of Acts. But what has happened here is one of the most historically and theologically significant events in the entire book of Acts. This is one of the major turning points in the history of the early church. What's happened here is huge. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, what's happened here in Antioch is Jesus is now for the first time been openly offered to the Gentile people. Openly offered to the Gentile people. Now, quick poll here. How many of you sitting here today have in your family tree, your family heritage, at least some Jewish heritage? We once wondered if my mom maybe had some Jewish heritage. It's possible. We haven't found any hard evidence, but I see a couple of hands, right? So the rest of you have no Jewish heritage. Here's what I want you to, to understand, because sometimes, you know, history, right, stuff that happens thousands of years ago, what does that have to do with me? Well, here's the thing. If Antioch, or something very much like Antioch does not happen, you are probably not here today. You are, as Paul says in Ephesians, without God and without hope. If this doesn't happen, you're probably not here today. And you probably have no relationship with Jesus. 
This is a hugely significant transition in God's work in this century. And you are a direct beneficiary of what God has done right here in Antioch. So the gospel is freely offered to the Gentiles for the first time. And the second thing is that what emerges here in the church in Antioch is not an exclusively Gentile church. So now we have, uh, in Antioch, we have a Gentile church for all the people who aren't Jewish. And then back in Jerusalem, we have a Jewish church for all the people who are Jewish. That's not what actually happens in Antioch. Because remember, there's a large Jewish population in Antioch, and they've also been hearing about Jesus. And so what's probably happened here is a church that is a mix of Jews and Gentiles united in Christ and worshiping Christ together. Again, this is unprecedented in the history. If you know anything about the history of the Jewish people and their surrounding cultures, this is very, very unusual. We have a united church of Jews and Gentiles worshiping Jesus together. They see themselves as partners in the mission to the Gentiles, and Antioch actually becomes the home base from which the Apostle Paul will start his missions to the Gentiles. It becomes Paul's sending church and home base. So it's very much involved in the spreading of the gospel among the Gentiles in the Mediterranean area. And it also is a church that sees themselves as partners with the Jewish believers. Because when the prophet Agabus comes up from Jerusalem and says there's going to be a famine that's going to affect the, the whole land, one of the first things that the church talks about is how can we help our Jewish brothers and sisters through this famine? Because they're family. We are united because of Christ. They are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And so we have this church of Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that the goal of Christ's death and sacrifice was not just to unite you as an individual with Christ, as important and central as that is. But Christ's goal is not just to reconcile or unite you with Jesus, but also to, rec to reconcile you with one another. So that there is now, Paul says, one new man without distinction between Jew and Gentile, without distinction of race, without distinction of ethnicity, but rather one people of Jesus Christ. So Christ's vision for his church is one body, one people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, without prejudice and without discrimination of any kind. Now sadly, the church of Jesus Christ has not always done a very good job of living this out. We have often been on the wrong side of history. We've often been on the wrong side of anti-Semitism. We've been on the wrong side of racism and black slavery. We've been on the wrong side of treatment of First Nations. We've been on the wrong side of our attitudes towards immigrants and immigration. We have often been on the wrong side of history. And I know there's all kinds of practical, social, religious, economic kinds of things here. We're not going to have time to unweave and unravel all these things this morning. I know there are lots of challenges and those types of things. But Christ's vision for the church is one people. One people regardless of race or ethnicity or social standing or, or personal background. One people united by Christ. That's actually what we're going to celebrate later on when we take communion. One people. Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That is the mark. That is the proof that we are true followers of Jesus. 
Not how many tears we weep when we worship, but whether or not we love one another. And whether, you not, whether or not you love the people who are different than you. It's easy to like people that are like us. How do we love the people who are different than us? You know, and I've had the privilege of traveling a little bit in my younger years in missions, and, I, and there were certain situations where I had families uh, who didn't know me from anybody, had never met me before, didn't even know, really know who I was. Uh, they, sometimes I didn't even speak a word of English, and I didn't speak a word of their language, and they would take me into their homes, and they would give me a bed, and they would give me three meals a day, sometimes for over a month, for no other reason than that we shared Christ. That was a cool thing. I mean, if you ever get an opportunity to travel and to, and, and to meet people from different nations who love Jesus. It is, it is an incredible thing to know that we have brothers and sisters all around the world. We are united because of Christ. And what it means is there is absolutely no room in the church of Jesus Christ for discrimination or racism or any of those types of things. This was Christ's vision. This was what he died to create. And so this is a defining moment in the history of the church, and its, its effects ripple all the way through history right to Grand Prairie Alliance Church, Grand Prairie, Alberta. Hugely defining moment in the history of the church. So how does God make this happen? Let's say that you were the chief strategist of Gospel Incorporated, and you were charged with starting this movement in Antioch and picking the people who would start this movement in Antioch, who would you pick? Given the magnitude of what's going to happen here, who would you pick? Would you pick Peter? I mean, he's a pretty heavyweight guy. I mean, Paul is a little rough around the edges, but certainly has lots of potential. Right? Maybe James or John or another one of the very popular apostles. Who gets charged with being the catalyst for this history-changing event in Antioch? Well, here's who God chooses. First of all, God sends some unknown people. We don't even know their names. We don't even know who they were. Men from Cyrene and Cyprus. Anonymous people. And they are people who are fleeing persecution. They've been run out of Jerusalem because they are following Jesus. If you got run out of town, lost your job, got persecuted, got bullied, got harassed, so much so that you actually had to leave town specifically because you were a Christian, once you're relocated, would you keep talking about Jesus? Or would you kind of keep it quiet so that nobody knows? So these unknown men fleeing persecution in Jerusalem come to Antioch and talk about Jesus. We don't even really know what prompted them. There's no evidence of dreams or visions or heavenly voices. I mean, that might have happened, but there's no evidence that that did. They're probably not even aware of Peter's encounter with Cornelius. Uh, maybe they reflected a little bit on Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 and said, well, Jesus kind of wants the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, so maybe we should do that. We're not told why they did what they did. Probably, my suspicion is, that it was most likely just a quiet conviction of the Holy Spirit in their souls. 
that they just quietly came to this conclusion, why not? Why not the Gentiles? Why not tell them about Jesus? And this happens, uh, again, there's no evidence in the text of any miracles or wonders or supernatural phenomenon. Just simple, courageous obedience to Jesus' command to tell people the gospel and make disciples. But the text says the Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Well, eventually the church sends Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is a little bit more, uh, more known. And Barnabas is, he's one of the, really the unsung heroes of the early church. Barnabas was the kind of guy that, you know when you're driving home from church after a service, right, and you're talking about, you know, all the things that you learned and how great it was and how much you loved the worship and how great the preaching was, because you only say good things about church when you drive home after church, right? So you're driving home after church talking about all the great things, and from the back seat somebody pipes up and says, you know who I really like? You know who's really cool? Barney. <laughs> I really like Barney. And everyone goes, yeah, Barney is a good man. Barney is full of the Holy Spirit. What do you mean by that? Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. It's very, really fascinating to me because in contrast to some of the other major characters in the book of Acts, Peter, who kind of dominates the first half, and Paul, who kind of dominates the second half, in contrast to Peter and Paul's work, which is filled, it's saturated with, with visions and miracles and healings and supernatural works, the Holy Spirit working very powerfully through these men, Barnabas's ministry is noticeably quiet. There's no mention of riveting speeches, healings, miracles, wonders. If you're looking for supernatural manifestations of the Spirit in Barnabas, you're kind of disappointed because there just isn't a lot of that stuff going on. So what does it mean to say that Barnabas is full of the Spirit? And what does it mean for that matter to be full of the Spirit? What do we mean by that term? Well, Acts actually uses that term in two kind of related but distinct ways. In fact, it uses two different Greek words. We're not going to get into the Greek today, but it uses two different terms. One term, which is usually translated filled with, refers to or seems to refer to an empowering event. There is this event in time that happens. There is a crisis. There is a need. There is an opportunity. And the Holy Spirit kind of supercharges somebody, comes on somebody and just bam, supercharges them. And then they get up and they do something. They, they preach a riveting gospel message or they perform a miracle or they speak boldly. And so there's this kind of this supercharged moment where the Holy Spirit gets a hold of someone and they go to do something that is phenomenal because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. The other term is a term that's usually translated full of, and it seems to refer to more to a, a condition, like a character condition, a character quality. A condition of someone who is, just seems to be living their life under the constant direction and guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And, and in these occasions, we don't see a lot of miracles or supernatural phenomena. We just see, what we tend to see is character. Their character comes out. Uh, that's, by, by the way, the term that Ephesians uses when it talks about being filled with the Spirit. The only other place in the, in the New Testament where being filled with the Spirit is actually discussed. Uh, 
Now, it's tempting to think of being a spirit-filled person or being filled with the spirit as being primarily based in some kind of an experience or some kind of an event, right? In the Old Testament, this is kind of what happened. The Holy Spirit would come on somebody, right? And then they would be empowered for whatever work God had called them to do. And it, it, sometimes it's tempting to think of being spirit-filled as being primarily rooted in some kind of an experience or some kind of an event. And so we'll say things like, we need more of the Holy Spirit. Right? Or we'll ask God to pour out His Spirit on us. Or we'll call the Holy Spirit, we'll ask the Holy Spirit to come, to show up, to meet with us, to fall on us, right, and to fill us, right, and we're, we're not going to dissect the terminology that we use today, I'm, we're not going to dissect all those types of things, but sometimes our language can imply that the Holy Spirit is something that is outside of us. The Holy Spirit is something that is over there, up in heaven, and for some reason, God has not given us as much Holy Spirit as we need. He's kind of holding out on us. And so we have, to, we have to beg God and ask God and cry out to God and somehow convince God to say, eh, okay, I'll turn the tap up a little bit. You can have a little more Holy Spirit. Right. And sometimes we, we speak of the Holy Spirit in kind of that way. But Jesus, when Jesus described the Holy Spirit in John 7, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is like a spring or a river springing up from within you. The Holy Spirit is springing up from within you. Meaning when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. Paul says in Romans, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. It's that simple. No Spirit, no Christ. But the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And so we don't have to somehow convince the Holy Spirit to go come from over there to over here. Because the Holy Spirit is already within you if you have Christ, if you belong to Jesus. And so when we don't have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is always there in, in, in a perpetual supply. And so when we don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit... It is likely not because God has somehow turned off or turned down the tap. And, we, and He's not giving us as much Holy Spirit as we need. More likely, when we don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, more likely it's because of other things. Maybe there are cracks in our soul. And what the Holy Spirit is doing in us is leaking out. There may be cracks because of maybe unconfessed sin or open rebellion against God. We're just simply not following God very carefully. And so what the Holy Spirit is doing on us is it just leaks out because we're not paying any attention to it, right? Or maybe there's, there's struggles or maybe there's hurts and pains that we haven't really come to God with for healing. And so there are open wounds in our soul. And every time the Holy Spirit bubbles up from within us, it just sort of leaks out the cracks, Right? Or maybe it's because we're filled with other things, distractions, worries, distortions, sometimes even good things, but they're things that keep us from really following Jesus 
intentionally. There's things that distract us, things that, that keep us from really dialing into what Jesus wants to do and what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. Now, I mean, even this morning as I'm preparing to speak, um, I was having a little bit of a, a tough time this morning because I was distracted. A couple of things uh, had distracted me, and I was distracted. So I wasn't thinking about Jesus. I wasn't thinking about the Word. I was thinking about all these distractions. And so as we're worshiping, uh, you know, I, I started just to ask the Holy Spirit, come in and Flush those things out. Get them out of the way. Because they're interfering with what you want to do. Right? So it's not that the Holy Spirit is not there. It's sometimes we have, for some reason, not been open to that. Someone has said the, the question is not really, does, do I have all of the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of me? And that often is the question we need to ask. And so to be full of the Spirit in this sense, it means that we live in this constant awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence. Uh, I'm greatly influenced by a, by a writing by a guy named Frank Laubach. Uh, and he talked about something. He invented something for, just for his own spiritual growth. He called it the game with minutes. And Frank Laubach said, here's what I try to do every day. I, I play this little game with myself. And the goal of the game is to try to think every minute at least once about the presence of God that's with me, the fact that God is with me, the fact that the Holy Spirit is in me. I try to think at least once every minute about God. Now, Laubach said, I fail miserably at this. I'd never win the game. But he says, what it has done is it's transformed my awareness of the presence of God. I become much more vividly aware that the Holy Spirit is there. And it changes the way I live, this awareness. So this constant awareness of the Holy Spirit, and then this constant connection and submission to the Holy Spirit, that I'm listening for the Spirit, that I'm, I'm, I'm responding to the Spirit, I'm obeying the Spirit, I'm depending on the Spirit for my strength and my love and my grace, and maybe to love that person who I don't really like because they're too different from me or they annoy me, and I want to live out the vision of Christ. So I live that way, and it becomes something that's demonstrated by things like the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in that context of that relationship, if God wants to supercharge you, fill you with the Holy Spirit, to use the Acts term, if He wants to supercharge you with a special infusion of His power so that you can do something that is bold and courageous and audacious, or because He wants to work a miracle through you, or He wants to do a healing through you, or He wants to do something phenomenal through you, then so be it. God can do that. And He will do that. But that's not the essence, that's not the root of our fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Holy Spirit isn't rooted in one of those experiences. It's rooted in this constant connection, this constant awareness and submission to the Spirit within us. And so in Barnabas, the fullness of the Spirit comes out in things like wisdom and generosity and grace and humility and love and joy and steadfastness, and faith. But look what God does through this. Without Barnabas, there may never have been a church in Antioch. Without Barnabas there to encourage them, and to teach them, and when he hears that the Gentiles are coming to faith, rather than saying, you can't do that, he says, great, do it more. Let me teach you, let me show you how to follow Jesus. Without Barnabas, Paul may never have become a great missionary, because it's Barnabas that opens the door for Paul. So in a, in a book, the book of Acts, that is saturated with miraculous things, and I don't want to minimize the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, 
right? Some of us need to be more open to the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, probably myself included. So I don't want to minimize the work of the Holy Spirit in those ways. But in a book that is saturated with miraculous works of the Holy Spirit, one of the most extraordinary and significant events in the entire book happens in a very ordinary manner through very ordinary people that simply follow the quiet promptings of the Holy Spirit in obedience. And the text says, and the hand of the Lord is with them. And God changes history. And he changes your history. I mean, churches like to write slogans. Right? And some of our slogans are good. <laughs> some of our slogans are not so good. Some of them are really corny. Uh, I came across one a number of years ago that has kind of always stuck with me. I really, actually really do like this one. Uh, and it's this. Ordinary people, extraordinary God. Ordinary people, extraordinary God. You know, God has his array of power, uh, power pieces. He is the chess master. He has the whole chess board. He has his array of strong leaders, bold adventurers, miracle workers, heroic figures, larger-than-life individuals, and in his plan, he uses those people, and we need those people. The church needed its Peters and its Pauls. We need those people. And he uses those people. And there are times when God works in spectacular, miraculous, unexpected ways. And we need those works of God. But sometimes, many times, maybe most of the time, the strength of the church is in ordinary people who are good people, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. People who have simply decided, God, wherever you place me, I want to live in awareness of your presence. I want to live in obedience to you. I want to listen to you. I want to respond to you. I want to depend on you. Whether it's a big thing or a little thing, I just want to live my life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you might look at yourself and say, I'm not really a significant piece on God's chessboard. I'm not a knight, I'm not a rook, I'm not a bishop, I'm not a queen. I'm just a pawn. Well, let me tell you that a pawn filled with the Holy Spirit is a formidable piece of God's kingdom strategy. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that you work through ordinary people. And sometimes you work in spectacular ways. And sometimes you work in very simple, quiet ways. But Father, we ask that for each one of us, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Through your Spirit, you would strengthen us to contain the fullness of all that you want to do in us. That we would be people who listen for you. That we would be people who are aware of your presence. That we would be people who respond to you. We recognize your voice. We do it. We, we obey whether it's easy or whether it's difficult. We would be people that depend on you. And if you want to do something miraculous and supernaturally phenomenal through us, then so be it, Lord, use us. And if you want to do something very quiet and behind the scenes with us, then so be it, Lord, use us. But may we be people of the Holy Spirit's fullness 
so that you can do whatever you want in us and through us and through us, through your spirit working in us, we would change this city, we would change this province, we would change this country, we would change this world. That is our prayer. Do it not for our glory. Do it for your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.